That was Spiritual Journey, a sonata for four voices by the composer Steve Wallace. It was performed as a part of Hearing in Colors, A Journey Unsung. Welcome to Relevant Tones. This is Stephen Anthony Rawson. Today I'm pleased to be speaking with LaRob K. Raphael, the artistic director and founder of Hearing in Color, and the composer of the piece we just heard, Steve Wallace. LaRob, you wear many different hats one of which is founder and artistic director of Hearing in Color. Can you tell me a little bit about how Hearing in Color got its start? Yeah, so Hearing in Color really kind of started because of this need, my own personal need to see the music by Black composers programmed more frequently. And so I started to put together small recitals of music by Black composers and got a bunch of friends together and we all just started performing this music. Through that, so many people started to reach out and say, well, yeah, you know, there's also art song by this demographic of people or these folks. And the question was always, why is this not programmed? Why is this not studied? And so I really felt like Hearing in Color was a platform for all of those stories to be told, giving some sort of amplification to the non-white, non-European classical song. Somehow or another, I started just telling people that that was what I was doing. And uh, then North Shore Baptist Church got wind of it and they wanted to support Hearing in Color further. And we started doing specific programming for that church. We've done a couple of February concerts, somehow centered around Black history or Martin Luther King. And, and it just kind of took off from there. Different artists have come to Hearing in Color and wanted to perform. And, you know, then we became fiscally sponsored through Lynx Project. And from there started to branch out on our own. And now as a fiscally sponsored organization through Fractured Atlas are performing works like Undying Love with Steve. So it's been a very upward journey and it's been really exciting to see all of this music definitely deserves spotlighting and amplification and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. What has the network experience been like? Has it been a lot of people coming up to you and saying, I want to help, I want to be a part of Hearing in Color? Have you been reaching out to people and asking them to contribute their artistry? Yeah, um, it's been a little bit of both. A lot of people hear about the work because I talk about it all the time. <laughs> There's one thing. And I feel like more often than not, audiences are really kind of looking for an authentic story to be presented on stage and through music. And classical music has the ability to do that, but we're so frequently just kind of stuck behind the traditional or the typical. And I felt like Hearing in Color was actually doing something explorative and expansive that people wanted to kind of grab onto. There's that, but then I, I also specifically reach out to people who I feel like are doing expansive work. For example, Steve Wallace or, you know, other organizations or groups of people that I just feel like can help redefine what classical music is and what a classical concert experience can be. So a lot of people have, have just kind of latched on to that, wanting to see classical music performed at a different level. It's been really overwhelming the amount of people who like hearing in color and see the work that we're doing and, and want to support. I mean, from North Shore Baptist Church, literally just saying, hey, do you want to do a concert? We'll give you the space for free. 
to WFMT coming to one of those concerts and then saying, okay, you need a program on WFMT. So it's, it's really been overwhelming, but it's been exciting. You work with a ton of really high caliber musicians and doing a breadth of music all the way from art song and choral music to opera now. Steve, when did you and LaRob meet? So LaRob and I went to DePaul University together. I was in, doing my master's degree and he was an undergrad. We got cast in a couple of operas together. We did Albert Herring and we did La Boheme. We, we did Cunning Little Vixen, too, I think it was kind of first started, you know, we would be backstage and just kind of vibing off on different aspects of the score that many people were not, you know, things that we felt that kind of connected with our culture. And just the fact to have somebody else that kind of got things that was in, that was in the classical world, but also got things culturally that I that I got to is always a, a great experience. And I always look for that. Um, because of that, I started sharing with him like project ideas and things. Because I actually I came to DePaul as a singer, but I actually applied as a composer and a singer. So I kind of got in, but I always knew I wanted to compose too. So in the midst of like just hanging out with LaRob or like between classes and stuff, I'm like, yo, check this out. I did this. Oh, I'm writing this opera about that. Or I want to do this one day. And and he was digging all of it and he was getting it, you know, because it was coming from a authentic place culturally. But at the same time, it had the training and the understanding of classical music as well that we both appreciated. And we just continued to build our relationship. And when he was doing more with hearing and color, he was he he had this idea for this piece and like, I want you to write this. And I was like, yeah, sure. And so so it just kept sort of growing like that.
You're both vocalists. Steve, you're a tenor, and LaRob, you're a baritone. What is it about vocal music that really draws you to that as a medium? Yeah, I mean, for me, first off, just the power of the voice in general. I mean, when, when our ancestors were stolen from Africa and brought here, our drums and our, were taken away from us. So the human body was all we had to communicate. Music is one of the, arguably one of the highest forms of communication, you know, because it communicates things beyond words, you know, the hum, the groan, the, si the size, these types of things. And, and so we had our voices. That's harder to take away from somebody. And we had our bodies. So bodies became our rhythm, all the point to now to be beatbox, right? I've heard instrumentalists to be in awe of like singers more in the fact of, you know, your instrument is in inside your body. So whatever your body is going through, your instrument is going through. That, you know, sort of fully organic communication is happening with the voice. So that's just one thing that I think is really powerful. I, I agree. I think more personally for me, I grew up around singing and in my household, when I was young, more often than not, my family was singing as a form of connecting with each other than we were having conversations. It was, let's gather around and like sing together. If we were upset, if we were frustrated, if whatever was going on was always put to the side whenever we were in the house singing. And I felt like it was our way of addressing the situation with our voices, with our music, it was what we had, and, and I agree with Steve in that it, it's harder to take away from someone because it's so internal and spiritual and personal. I think that's definitely why I connect with vocal music in the way that I do, because you have this ability to communicate something beyond the words that you're saying. I can sing the song, you know, and I can sing a song that says, the sky is blue, but depending on how emotionally I am feeling, you may take away seven different interpretations of that one phrase. I, I get to kind of play around with that. The voice has this way to kind of maneuver a, a static feeling and, and I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, singing is like you say, deeply personal, but it's also a very communal activity. What about singing with a group of people from a quartet or a choir, what attracts you to that? I mean, it is the connection, you know, I've been in situations where people speak different languages, but can sing together. I think it's the great unifier too, you know what I mean? And I think that about music in general, when America was having issues, trying to figure out that human beings are human beings, no matter where they come from. In circles where musicians were, these type of integrations were happening more often and more easily. In in like jazz circles, like when when the in the black jazz musicians had to come through the back door and the white jazz musicians came in the front, but like after the gig they're jamming together and they're respecting each other because they they're feeling that vibration. So I think the communal aspect of it is huge, and when it's something that's a vibration that's literally coming out of my body and a liter and a vibration literally coming out of yours and it's meshing and blending together or interacting in any type of way, I think that's that's really powerful. Um, there's, a, there's a healing element to that as well. Ellie Kakasik, I, I, I've, um, I, I was, I produced like about four records on her new album that's coming out soon. There's a couple that are floating around now, but she talks about that we take for granted the fact 
as singers that we have healing vibration coming through our body. And that's a thing I know that happens. And to be able to do that communally is a whole other thing. I just recently was a part of Elastic Arts. I met some amazing people during Ear Taxi Festival, two of which were Dr. Adam Zanellini and Angel Bakdawid. And they talked to me on the side about this concept called autophysiopsychic connection. Then they started sending me articles written about and written by Dr. Youssef Latif. And he talks about this insane connectivity that musicians have, and particularly Black musicians have, to communicate through their music making. And a lot of jazz musicians studied under Dr. Youssef this concept of autophysio-psychic music making, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to sound super like, ooh, but when I think about what is communal about vocal music, uh, it's really that. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's this ability to kind of connect not only with the people around you, but also connect back with yourself, being able to translate the feeling that you have into something that you can give to others. I always felt like as a singer, I am a medium into an experience that someone else may not have had, but I can allow that person to feel exactly what it feels like to be placed in that situation because of the way that I'm able to communicate something and vice versa. I've been in audiences where I've watched a singer sing about something that I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about, but I know exactly what they're talking about because of the way that they're connecting and communicating it to me. It especially comes through when you attach it to someone with a lived experience and someone with a, a voice and a means to communicate it to an audience. I've heard that analogy too. I've heard a lot of vocalists describe themselves as a sheet of glass or like a window. I want to ask about storytelling next, particularly starting with the piano voice setup, thinking art song and spiritual. What are some of the stories in, in those genres that attract you both? That's an interesting question specifically about when I'm thinking about spirituals, mostly because I feel like when I'm singing spirituals, the story that I'm trying to communicate is not necessarily my own, but it's my own. <laughs> it's... It's, it's like a story of, of ancestry that kind of comes through on its own. What interests me the most about art song and storytelling through song is the human story. I like being able to look at a piece and take the poetry apart and find what is just bare bones human about it. The beauty about art song is that it's often written super, super poetically and takes some serious sitting down and being like, okay, what does this person mean when they say, you know, and the sky fell apart in dashes of rainbow? What does that mean for me as the communicator? And it's interesting and it's fun to be able to kind of break those down and find the personal connection that you have with whatever's going on in that story. Often it's a very simple story. It's like, they've said all of these poetic words to me and I was really upset when they left me. And it's like a, a puzzle almost. You, you sit down with that music and you find that key. And then it's like, ah, now I know how to communicate this story. The same thing with, um, with spirituals, though a little bit different in that 
there's always kind of something that connects me to a spiritual, but even breaking down the language and really understanding what it is that this person or the, the writer or the character is saying in the story and how that makes them human and how I may have experienced those things or see those things happen in the world. What I'm really trying to do is communicate a story. You know, one of the things that I've always really liked is like the end of an inception where I feel like my, my world has become surprisingly has expanded somehow. Everything that I tend to have been drawn to does that for me. Whether it's this sort of enigmatic poetry of Wordsworth or Shakespeare or Ghostface or Charlotte Grimke or something, you know what I mean? If I peel back one layer of the onion and I'm already done with the onion, I'm like, that's okay. That's cool. But I'm on to the next one. It's that type of art with art song that I feel like there's this, these multiple layers and that's where you get those multiple interpretations, you know. With the spirituals, their inception was with within the context of it being multi-layered to begin with. And so that's a, you know, when you were saying sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home, it has so many in connotations and inferences that it makes it way more interesting to present. So that's what I tend to like. And I think in storytelling too, when there's that turn. Y'all have seen Akira? When I saw it the first time, my first response, well, first was like, oh, this, you know, it's cool animation and there's like this really cool motorcycle. And, and then at the end, I was like, what just happened to me? You know, and I have to watch it 17 more times. And then it opened me up to like studying like Eastern religion and philosophy, which helped me to understand what was being communicated on the piece. And, and that's the type of art that I'm typically drawn to.
transitioning from art song and spiritual, which is a more intimate medium, over to opera, which is really high drama and really intense, what kind of drama, what kind of stories do you like in opera? What do you want good opera to do to you? My first art song I sang was called Vamdes Nachtlied. And I remember I was interviewed by a professor. He asked me, so what is it about this song? Why are you singing this song? It's like, I was, it's inspiring to me. And he's like, you're inspired by Vanda's Nachtlied? I was like, yeah, actually. I mean, because it, I feel like the same drama that's in opera is in art song. It's just, just a different perspective of it. It's like looking at, you know, when you shrink down to mac micro size or macro size, like everything is hugely small and smallly big you know, at the same time, you know, and I, I think that concept is really fascinating. Some of it's culture based too. Germans of a certain time period were looking at certain things in a certain way. It was a thing they were trying to do with their art because of the philosophy of the time. And I think we associate that with art song, but I think it's more associated with time period and the culture. So when the Italians were doing Verismo in the, in the late 19th century, and it feels big and it's like Verdi's like, you know what I mean? And that's happening. It is it, <laughs> it is more like a, a, an element of the culture and the feel of the time of the people of the language and stuff like that. So I don't always feel like there's that much difference between art song and, and opera. It is sung differently because you, you have a 70 piece orchestra versus just a piano and it makes it feel more intimate at times, but then you have the really soft passage in the Bellini and then you're like, oh, that's super intimate. I think it's interesting because I agree with you, Steve, in that like there's not too much of a difference between art, art song and opera for me. Actually, art song, though, feels like the macro version of opera and opera mm. kind of deals a little bit more with the micro, because in an art song, I have to really kind of get down to what has happened to lead us to this moment. Whereas opera is more often than not, it will try to tell me, okay, all of these things have happened and now, ah, you know? Mm. So yeah, I think it's, it's really just a difference of uh, how it's sung. I did not know that life could be about good necessary trouble 
which was Hearing in Color's first virtual performance, which premiered um, in September during the pandemic. The entire concert is archived on your website, so everybody should go check it out. Go watch it. The concert features a lot of protest music, and a lot of different genres and musical styles, and it also features a panel discussion. Can you talk to me a little bit about where the idea for Good Necessary Trouble came from? Good Necessary Trouble really kind of Ooh, there was a lot going on in 2020 from the beginning of the year through August. And I felt like I, I desperately needed something to express what I was feeling in total, musically, artistically, and just factually. It was me trying to use what I had at the time. And that was my frustration, my anger, to get people on the same page to some degree about what was actually going on and why it was important that the people that we showcased in that show had the opportunity to tell their story effectively and to be amplified in the way that they were. There were issues about Blackness in opera, Blackness in classical arts. And, you know, what I tried to do was really take that away for a second and invite all of Black artistry from poets to R&B singers, to soul singers, to jazz artists, to et cetera, et cetera, spoken word artists, to try and come and tell the same story because at the end of the day, that's what we were all doing. We were all frustrated. We were all upset and wanted the opportunity to, to uh, express that. So Good Necessary Trouble birthed after Representative John Lewis's make good and necessary trouble statement was just that our attempt to say what needed to be said in a somewhat palatable way, even though that really wasn't the goal. Out of the panel discussion, what were some of the topics, the things that were shared that were most meaningful to you? Hmm. <laughs> uh, I always think, think about uh, this statement that Yelly Taylor said, so often people are asking, saying that they're inviting us to sit at the table. They want to give us a seat at the table when the real problem is that we don't want to eat this food. And I just really think that it just sums up the whole situation for me because it's one thing to invite me to sit at the table and give me the power to sit at the table. But what you're doing is you're asking me to just eat the food. You're not giving me the opportunity to cook my own food or share my own food, cook for the table. You're asking me to come in, sit down and eat what's being served. And too often what's being served to me it does not work well with my stomach. So what are we really doing when we have a seat at the table? I, I just I think that was brilliant. The other really brilliant idea that was brought forth by Kedrick was there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens in the classical music world pertaining even the genius of Blackness in classical fields. So often this music is not recorded. It's not available. It's not accessible. It exists. But in order to be able to perform it or to be able to get music, but it's, it's gatekept for whatever reason. And so it is the job and the responsibility of not only us as artists to be champions of this music, but also the classical music industry, including radio, radio and media and 
institutions and colleges who have access to this music, but are, are gatekeeping it in a way that doesn't allow for it to see the light of day, to uh, really kind of release it into the hands of the artists who will do, do the music justice. Blackness in classical music is not a new thing, yet we're still in 2021 asking for permission to be black in classical spaces. And that's a problem for me. You know, we have composers who have been composing for centuries, for decades, and yet we're asking for permission from white institutions to do the work that is important to us. Something I found really meaningful in the panel discussion, which is related to what you're saying, is that allyship should come with a cost, that there's a secession of power that needs to happen. A seat must be given up. Yeah, I think there's so much conversation about equity and not too much conversation about the power that needs to be kind of seated in order for it to actually be an equitable situation. How can I bring you in and still hoard all all the power? That doesn't make sense. Exactly. Um, so the conversation is still unfortunately just about inclusivity and diversity and not actually equity and justice, because that is where power has to be seated and power has to be released into the hands of the people who have for so long not had the power. We're saying that we're there. We're saying that we're ready to, to address these issues. I'm not seeing it. Steve, I loved your piano sonata that's on Good Necessary Trouble. Can you tell me a little bit about this piece and how it fits with the program? It's my second piano sonata, The Liberation of Royalty. This one came about sometime around after I saw Black Panther. Though I had a lot of the musical motifs and stuff prior to that, and I had kind of fooling around with them. It was on the back burner, and I knew I wanted to do something with it. And when I was playing it, I just had this sense of the liberation of royalty, just kind of seeing all of these black people across the world, just really embracing like this Wakanda mentality, this non-colonialized Africa, that just kind of inspired me to kind of conceptualize the whole thing. So when I was making the second movement, there was this art thing that happened in Central Park in New York, where there were these black curtains. That was the, the art installment. And I was just thought about like these curtains like flowing in the wind sort of and then it reminded me of some scriptures from the bible uh, specifically in uh, song of solomon where queen of sheba who's from ethiopia makeda she was in that poem and the bible says something to the fact of um, i am black and beautiful uh, like the tents of kedar right mm-hmm. and so the second movement is called the tents of kedar so I just kind of visualize like these, this black flowingness in fabric. That's where that comes from.
I want to ask about your chamber opera, Undying Love. Tell me a little bit about how this project started. Did it start with Nas? I was an undergrad, and I heard Nas's album, I Am. And the last track on the CD is called Undying Love. And at the same time, I have just recently been kind of opened up to the world of opera. And I was especially drawn to like Verismo opera at the time, Pagliacci and Cavalier Rusticana and Tosca. And like, I was eating that up. Like I loved it. And mostly because I saw that realism. I saw things that paralleled it in my life, in my community and in my experiences as a human being. So I was like, oh, wow, they feel like this too. You know what I mean? They, they go through these issues too. And so when I heard Undying Love, which is this story about Nas, he's talking about coming home from being out on the tour or whatever, and he finds his girlfriend in the arms of another man, and he's, he has to like struggle with that, figure out what he's going to do, and he thinks that vengeance is the answer, and you know, to try to deal with the guy and stuff. And when I finished listening to him, I'm like, this is, this is Verismo. This is like Pagliacci to me without like any hesitation. So I was like, man, what if somebody like made an opera based on this, but made it like really like an, like an opera opera, you know what I mean? Not like a hip hop opera. And I was like, I, I, so I'm gonna do this one day. One day I'm gonna, I'm gonna make like a one act, like a, like how Pagliacci and Cavalleria or Il Tabarro or something, you know, it's just one act gritty to the point and like, see y'all later, you know what I mean? So that's where it started from. And I didn't do anything with it immediately. I was working with this manager who was representing me as a producer and shopping my beats and my songs and stuff. And one day we were just talking and he was like, what other things do you want to do? I was like, well, I got this really cool idea. I want to write an opera based on this Nas song. And he was like, what? And so he was like really excited about it. And he started to encourage me to start writing a libretto for it. But he, he was thinking of it like this big piece, you know, like full four acts with like all the chorus and all the stuff. And, and I finished like a, a three or four act version of it. And then he and I had like creative differences and our, our relationship kind of fizzled. But years later, I it, it just kind of stuck with me and I had a bunch of like musical ideas for it and stuff, nothing really written down yet. But I was singing Cavalry Aristicana in Maryland. It was a Mar Maryland lyric opera. And they were doing um, Pagliacci and Cav. And I was just sitting in the rehearsals and it just, I was like, I need to write this opera, you know? So for the month I was there, I just, I wrote all the music for Undying Love. And it was cool because I was in the midst of like all this Verismo that was like kind of around me. And so that was cool. That is cool. Your cast includes Brian Major, who plays Taylor, Whitney Morrison, who plays Angela, Tyrese Bird, who plays Jesse, and Curtis Bannister, who plays Carlos. Can you tell me a little bit about these characters and the roles in the story? It's really um, Taylor's story. Brian Major's playing Taylor. He's come, He's the one that's coming home from tour. And we've re reset the time period, so it's not in like 99 or 98 or whenever the song came out. It's said in, this, in the early 1960s. Taylor is a jazz musician. And in a way, I kind of did that because Nas's father, Olu Dara, is a jazz trumpeter. And not to say it's about him or his him and his mother or anything like that. Just kind of a nod to him and the origins of hip-hop from jazz. Angela, who's played by Whitney Morrison, as you said. Angela is Taylor's girlfriend, soon-to-be fiancé. She's been left by herself at home while Taylor's got his uh, big break as a musician to go on tour. 
But, you know, the bills are still not being paid, too, because Taylor's been a struggling musician for a long time. Uh, Taylor comes home and he just had his big break and got some money from a recording contract and he's ready to marry Angela. And so um, Carlos is, Curtis Bannister is playing Carlos. Carlos is Angela's lover. Uh, so when Taylor comes home, he's, he, he doesn't know it's him immediately, but we find out later that's who it is. Carlos is a local star. Like he's also a jazz musician. And everybody knows his one song that blew up on the radio or whatever. And so when he goes places, it's like, oh, it's Carlos. Jesse is Taylor's friend. And they're close friends. And he's also, in some ways, a sort of a pushes Taylor to do things. Jesse is Tyrese Bird. Larab, talk to me a little bit about Hearing in Color doing this opera, this enormous undertaking. Woo! Oh. <laughs> As Steve mentioned earlier, he and I talked about Black opera well before I even knew about Undying Love. Staying connected with Steve over the years, he introduced me to it and I kept thinking, you know, Hearing in Color is not an opera company, but I want to do this, you know, (laughs) I really want to do this. At the time, I was feeling really ambitious and I was like, you know, Steve, give me Undying Love. We're going to do it. (laughs) And, you know, it's been such an exciting process, really. What I knew was important about this opera and is still important is that what Hearing in Color has been doing and has been focused on, which is this kind of celebrating an amplification of Black art and Black artistry, or the, just the work of people who are not so often seen in the larger classical uh, field, That work was very evident in what Steve had created with Undying Love. Not only is this a story that is connected to Black culture because it's written by a hip-hop artist like Nas, but it's written specifically for Black characters. And that is what I find important about it because if we set the story aside for a second, what we don't see in opera as frequently as I'd like, is giving Black people and Black artistry the ability to just be Black without having to fight against the oppression of being Black or triumph over the hardship of their circumstances, right? But we get to see that from from other characters. If we look at, you know, I don't know, Tusca, these characters get to just be and just exist and experience the full range and dynamics of emotions without it being qualified, right? But those characters were not written with a specific demographic person in mind. But whenever we talk about Black opera, it's gotta be a story of injustice and oppression. It's gotta be a story of triumph against all odds. Whereas we get to see with Undying Love, this story just gets to be a story told and written specifically for Black characters, for Black artists. And I really find that important with where we are right now in classical music and in opera specifically. And this is not me saying that I disagree with any stories that are stories about you know, trauma, et cetera, et cetera. I appreciate those stories because that is a truth about Black experiences. But 
I think this is an opportunity for us to wiggle our way out of the tropism in opera and create more expansiveness and imagination in it that is rooted in some sort of experiential aspect, but that we get to tell stories just as the Black characters we, we are and the Black artists we are. I'm excited that Undying Love gets the opportunity to be produced by an organization that has all of that in mind, because too, again, too often we see that these stories uh, about Blackness or that incorporate Blackness are taken into the hands of white organizations or white-led organizations, and then they're twisted to fit the needs of the typical white audience. I didn't want to do that with Undying Love. Undying Love is what it is, and the people that will receive it will be those who appreciate exactly that. I want to ask about the K. Ryan Center and why you chose this as the location for the premiere. Yeah, you know, this is a uh, an art center that is kind of a beacon for the Austin neighborhood in Chicago. They are recently renovated, I think in 2018, and really just wanted a place where that community could come for musical needs, musical and spiritual. There's a church that uh, operates out of the auditorium. You know, I went to meet with a couple of people at the center and I started to talk to them about hearing in color and let them know what it was we were doing, what we have done and why we exist. And immediately they were like, I don't know what needs to be done in order for this to happen here, but it has to happen here. And I was like, say no more. The interesting thing for me, and this is what I heard from Sharon Morgan, one of the organizers of the building, is that this community doesn't want to go downtown to see an opera at Lyric. They would even much rather not go to Oak Park to see a performance. This is a, a community that has this amazing center right here. It's connected to the schools and they want to start bringing artists to the community. And it's, it's really what they are asking for. It wasn't my goal to bring opera to the Austin neighborhood. That's not my goal. I hope that the Austin community actually engages with this piece in a way that informs it. And I'm excited to see how they show up. It's an awesome opportunity to build a connection with the K Ryan Center. And so this is probably the first of many performances there, I hope. Steve, I feel like you could have a kind of Il Tritico situation happening here with a, adding a couple more chamber operas. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the, that's the plan. There are plenty of story songs in hip hop that would also lend itself very easily to the operatic Verismo-esque type form. So that's what I'm formulating right now. An enormous thank you to Steve Wallace and LaRob K. Raphael for joining me today. And to all of you listeners, if you'd like to discover more about the music you heard today, check us out at relevanttones.com. Also, you can find more about Hearing and Color at hearingandcolor.org. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acm.org. <laughs>